0: You're listening to Two Sides of FI, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached FI in 2020. And this is our story.
1: Well, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate that uh, you all came. And for those who weren't able to be here live, put some questions in the chat in advance. That's super helpful, so thank you for that. Just as a reminder, this is not investment advice. We are here for education, entertainment, We're trying to give back. We're not trying to tell you what to do with your money. And since this is a live stream, I have no ability to edit my comments. So if I get something wrong or I'm talking about my own portfolio and it sounds like I'm telling you what to do, I'm not. So just know that you always want to do your own research, of course. First thing I'd like to address is a comment, and that's by Steve Patrick. And he said, I just fired today. Looking forward to learning more and enjoying this journey. Well, I wanted to start with this one so I could congratulate Steve. Uh, I think some people who have been around Reddit and other communities know that GFY is usually the uh, appropriate response to that, but, you know, decorum prevents me from spelling that out. So I'd just like everybody to join me in congratulating Steve on this latest step. Uh, If he wants to share more in the chat with you about his journey, by all means, Uh, and we're happy to have you here, Steve. So uh, congratulations and best wishes to you on all that comes, and please tell us how things are going for you. The next question that uh, came in, and and this one came in multiple times in advance of the show, and I'm not at all surprised, and I absolutely want to talk about it. It's one of the reasons I'm doing the live stream. Uh, The question is, you know, what's going on with you and Eric? How come it's been about a month since you've uh, released an episode? And so that means we've missed one. Uh, in between, and then today is, uh, you know, if I release this today, we're back on track. Well, there's a really good reason actually, and it's nothing to be concerned about. The timing is kind of interesting, because of course that gap came after Eric and I did that Fight Club episode. Uh, So the first thing I want to dispel is that there's any kind of issue between us, or that that there's any concerns. Uh, Actually, I just saw Eric a couple weeks ago. Uh, He and Laura came out to visit us in California for our mutual 50th birthday celebrations. Not Laurie, she's not there yet, but uh, all All of us have turned or will be turning 50 shortly. So we got together, had a great dinner together. Uh, They met some of my other local friends. And, uh, yeah, so we're doing great. What's going on is Eric and I are taking a little bit of a summer break from the standard format episodes. And that's primarily so that Eric can focus on a pretty exciting opportunity that he has for his business, 30 by 40. And if you've been here before, you know about his both online and you know architecture business. So this is gonna give him a little time to focus on that. It's already paying off that he's got this headspace available. Just talked to him about it a couple days ago, and so I'm really excited for him. Uh, but rest assured, we've got content already recorded. We've got more episodes planned. So um, will you see an episode with both of us before the end of July? I think it's quite possible, but I'm not really going to commit to that. That's not really fair to do to Eric. But uh, just after this little summer break ends, we'll be back on track with our standard content. So rest assured, two sides of five will continue to be two and not one side of five. All right. Uh, The next question is from the chat. It's from Hawking1969, and they ask, which is more important? Number one, spending time refining beyond the 4% rule, or two, figuring out how to spend your time? Now, I wanted to have this one early because it's kind of a head scratcher, and I I don't know if I'll give you a great answer, but they're both really, really important, but I think it's it's vital not to fixate on the first one at the expense of the second. And what I mean is, you know, as we talked about in uh, one of the episodes with Karsten, and I think also with Karsten and Fritz Gilbert, it's very easy to just stay focused on the numbers because much of that is, you know, fits many of our headspaces already, right? We're on this path. We like doing that kind of math. Um, it's easier in many respects for quite a few people to focus on the, you know, Tangible stuff like numbers and money versus, you know, some topics that can be hard thinking about socio uh, emotional topics, but they're both essential. Um, But I would say that it's very important, especially. Um, In the last few years, if not earlier, to be honest, to be thinking about why you have interest in retiring earlier. Why are you charging so hard towards financial independence, even if you don't intend to retire early? Because if you don't, you could end up on the side of the equation like some folks did in the how not to fire episodes. Those of you haven't seen it, check out part two in that series. Um, then you have folks who fire they do leave their job and there's regret if not immediately within the first year or two as we've seen pretty commonly on Reddit where folks don't really know what to do with themselves they don't have a plan they don't really understand their why and they find themselves really missing things about work and you know to be honest it's not a failure to miss work and want to go back to it but it's a really good idea to you know work through what you're getting from employment what are the benefits both not just the tangible, i.e. compensation, but, you know, what are the other benefits that you might be gaining? And think about what would you like to do with all that time you know how, how have available, right? So that's what number two is getting at. So if you make me choose, uh, obviously I'm going to say, well, you can't forego number one. Because if you get the number wrong, you get your financials wrong, you could find yourself in a desperate situation and need to try to get back to work, um, you know, quickly, but number two is vital, right? You really do need to plan. So both are essential. Keep things in balance, right? Maybe it's another example of two sides of phi. Uh, so yeah, hard to choose, but both are essential. All right, thanks for that, uh, Hawking. Uh, our next question is from Susan Harkima. Sorry if I got that wrong. Uh, and she asks, how easy or difficult was it for you to take over from your previous financial advisor? Why did you decide to take over? And what are all aspects that you're now handling and not paying for yourself? Well, the quick answer here is that there's a several part series on this. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, But, you know, why I went that route is I felt like, you know, having had the opportunity to work with traditional assets under management advisors in the past, it was a very important and helpful part of my own financial education. Uh, Particularly if we dial the clock back to when I knew I wanted to retire early but didn't you know, necessarily know of a fire community and really hadn't focused a lot on the how to get there. Um, working with professionals, despite the fees, right? I'm not ignoring those fees, they're important to think about. They gave me a proper education in so many ways, pointed me towards resources. And that really got me started on my own educational journey. And so that was essential. Why did I stop? Well, I felt like I was ready to graduate. And those are honestly the words I used with my financial advisors when I talked to them about going out on my own. I had learned what I needed to know. Um, By this point, I was already retired early, and so I only had more time available to think about the portfolio, decide what changes I might want to make from what I'd done to date, and just continue to do research on tax topics and other things that were important to me. And so I really felt like it was the time. And so you'll hear me talk about that in the episodes I'm going to link. So I really just felt I was ready, to be quite honest, and it didn't make sense to pay For that, you know, that uh, average 1% AUM fees, which compounded over time is really a substantial amount of money, not to say that doesn't have value and not to judge people who might choose to continue to do that. I just decided and we Laurie and I decided it wasn't for us. So what have I taken over? All of the portfolio management, so any moves made in the account are now mine. Any kind of tax planning around that, uh, they used to play a role in that, uh, as did my CPA. I still continue to work with somebody for my taxes, so I do still do a little bit of tax planning with them. Although more and more of that is on me at this point. Um, and then, you know, of course, anything transactional that's going on, you know, generating income from the portfolio for paying for life's expenses. Uh, all of that work is now done by me. So there's more oversight. But as I've talked about, uh, Eric and I talked about in recently in an episode about what's our quarterly planning process, it's not really that much once you get comfortable with it. So it wasn't hard. There's a bit of a learning curve, especially if it's not an area you weren't al- already spending time on. So what I would say is if you're somebody that has used Uh, financial advisors in the past and you fire, don't just on a whim cancel that relationship. You know, you want to go into that kind of decision with eyes wide open, know what you're trying to get out of it. Make sure you really understand what that bridge is going to look like for you to feel fully comfortable. And you might also check out our our, uh, episode on uh, hiring the services of a uh, fee-only kind of project-based financial advisor because... They might give you the confidence with a a simple one-stop shopping. Uh, both Eric and I found that a pretty valuable experience, so uh, check that out as well. I think that's uh two sides of com slash one K Advisor, if I'm not mistaken. All right, let's move on. Thanks for the great question, Susan. Uh, the next one is from Scott Salter. It says, Are you still highly confident in big earns SWR, safe withdrawal rate spreadsheet? Are you still do you still have high confidence in the Cape-based withdrawal rate? Uh, calculations. And if you spend at that level when it's high, doesn't that guarantee you'll have to spend less in a future month? So a great question. We have gone really deep on this topic, both with Uh, Karsten one-on-one with Karsten and Fritz, and then in an episode that Eric and I uh, did together. I believe those are at twosidesoffi.com slash SWR. I'll link that in the show notes as well. I am absolutely confident in the spreadsheet. Well, I won't say 100%, right? A scientist, certainty is hard to find. But, you know, Karsten has done a tremendous amount of work, and I've had the opportunity to talk to him both on the show and off the show Um, And have read through his work extensively and even when I was working with my advisor shared it with them and gotten their feedback on it So I'm quite confident in the methods the math. Could you ever have unforeseen circumstances that blow it out of the water? Of course you could but you know, you're not taking permanent decisions each and every day that can't be rolled back um, When you're talking about withdrawal strategies. so that's the first thing to know Uh, On the CAPE side, yes, I like the CAPE withdrawal strategy a lot. I did talk about that in a couple episodes now, and we did do a tutorial on that. That's a really useful one for many people, according to the feedback I've gotten. So, again, something I would recommend checking out if you have any interest in that area. How it's worked practically for Lori and I has been really great, honestly. No, I don't withdraw at the max. This is something Eric and I uh, joked about a little bit on uh, the episode I'm referring to. Uh, I always go below it. So let's just pick some numbers here. Let's say if the max CAPE adjusted amount I could withdraw in a given month is calculated to be $8,000, perhaps I would draw at $6,500 because that's where my budget actually is. And I'm just making up some numbers here. So there's a $1,500 gap that I could choose to use, there's a surplus, because some months things are going to happen that are going to take you outside of your budget, uh, as may come up later in an ACA question. You know, you may have all of a sudden unexpected medical costs that are way beyond what you budget. And, and those who've seen our healthcare episodes know I do maintain a sinking fund for out-of-pocket healthcare because I do have a bronze ACA plan. But in the same month, uh, my wife and our teenager both ended up uh, in the E.R., for unforeseen events and they're both fine, don't worry, but that results in expensive uh, fees until you hit your deductible. So those were well beyond what we had budgeted, but because in all the months leading up to it, we had had buffer available, We didn't think twice about it, not that we would think twice about spending money on needed health care, but you know what I mean? It didn't keep me up at night at all. Yes, that was a big bolus of money to go out the door more than once in a month, but we could easily accommodate it. And so that's how I think about it. Yes, it's true that if you're withdrawing at the max, as the market changes and the cape changes, your withdrawals will have to change. But as Karsten talked about and has written about, you can avoid that kind of whipsaw effect or the strength of that drawdown by having the smoother CAPE-based method as compared to some of the other variable withdrawal rate strategies. So have a look at that. If it's interesting to you, check out his writing. He goes into far more depth than I'm able to. Thanks for the question, Scott. All right. Like the Sky had a related question on CAPE adjusted strategies and says, uh, they tried to get a CAPE calculated for VT. That's a Vanguard, uh, worldwide fund, but it's harder to do the CAPE calculated on, uh, it's hard to do a CAPE on that uh, because Carsten's is based on the S&P 500, as is Robert Schiller's. That's what Carsten is adjusting here with his modified CAPE ratio. Have you modeled CAPE for your portfolio specifically? Simple answer is no. Um, I think this S&P 500-based method Is demonstrated to work pretty darn well. Uh, I'm not aware of alternative strategies that would be um, equivalently performing. If someone knows about them, go ahead and link them in the chat. It could be good reading for all of us. But I think that my portfolio is sufficiently diverse and tracks appropriately enough or or similarly enough that I feel pretty confident about the method. Um, Does that mean it will always move in lockstep with the S&P 500? Well, hopefully not, because I do have some diversifying assets in there. Um, So no, it's not perfect. No, I haven't taken any steps to try to make it more perfect, but um, it is what it is. So uh, I hope that's useful. It's not a perfect answer, but if anybody has other resources, go ahead and link them. All right. uh, Another related one that came in from uh, Brian Anderson. Uh, Great video on the CAPE SWR. Thank you. Uh, Carson's been critical of dynamic spending I like the cape idea but I'm worried about the downside Um, Table shows some pretty Low percentage which would be tough Yeah I think it's another example of the types Of things you have to consider that fall under the Bucket of risk tolerance Because as Eric and I have talked about and Many other financial bloggers and YouTubers have discussed there's not just Risk capacity which is about Mathematically how much risk can You take on right based on the parameters About your life but risk tolerance And that's much more mental and emotional and so um, very important to make sure you're considering those factors as well um, because it's not just about the math so if the prospect of having to reduce your spending at all versus um, your a fixed strategy is concerning to you, definitely consider a fixed strategy uh, you know make sure you understand the options and, and this is why people like Wade Fow and others have done a great job of talking about how risk And your perception of risk plays into strategies you you should do. And that's why you hear so many financial bloggers and YouTubers talking about uh, things like uh, a dignity floor of expenses and maybe covering those with annuities. Now, annuities are not something Eric and I have spent much time on because they're not very appealing to us for a variety of reasons. But many people, uh, especially traditional retirees, elect to use certain types of annuities like SPIAs, um to cover their basic expenses so they never have to worry about that and they're willing to be a little more risky with the flexible part of expenses and so uh, the discretionary stuff and so that's a decision everybody needs to make for themselves. thanks for the question uh, let's move on so uh, uh, Brian Barnhill uh, says 13 months already belated congratulations to you Uh, My biggest challenge has been the lack of forced structure in my calendar. It's way too easy to put off tasks. Can you talk about how you managed having total control of your time? Yeah, that's a real one for me. Um, Structure is important to many people and that's not to say it's the only way to be. I think like anything, anything that's too extreme in one direction or the other has a a way of running afoul. I found early on I was trying to jam a lot of things into my schedule almost like my old work uh calendar and and you know I was chatting with someone on uh, a financial discord about this today um it's you know, it's a natural tendency for many of us to feel like if we're not filling our time or have our days totally planned out that we're failing in early retirement. And I think some of that could be guilt related. It could be uh, thoughts about, you know, things that I know I felt like, well, I have this opportunity in front of me. Why wouldn't I uh, fill that with everything I can? Otherwise, I'm not taking advantage of this opportunity, right? I'm I'm relatively young, healthy, able, you know, why am I not filling this? Um, so I think It's you you have to sort of this is one of those things that's helpful to think about in advance. You can't truly know what it's going to feel like until you do it. But when you think about what motivates you, how do you like to organize your time? What works best? Doing that as early as possible. It's at least good to think about, maybe talk about with your spouse or your partner or whoever you share your life with. Um, But, you know, managing your time is a personal decision. And so one of the ways I've sort of tried to handle that uh, is in between solution. And I think I talked about this in my one year retirement look back milestone episode. um, I tend to have the first half of my day much more structured, right? I do things in a particular order and then the afternoon is much more unstructured, varies day to day and it's more like what I'm feeling like doing. And that's been a happy medium for me, but quite honestly, how I felt about such things the first six months after I stopped working and now three years later are totally different. So I think the other thing I'd say is just honor the fact that you are going to change how you think about these things and how you feel about them 13 months out might be quite different about how you feel about them two years uh, out. Um, But I wish you luck in thinking about how you manage your time and how you fill that time, and please keep us posted, Brian. All right, uh, next question, uh, if I can pronounce this right, is from uh, Dolgon2002. says, any advice for firing while you still have a high school-aged kid at home? Do you find it restricts the newly purchased freedom like travel or things like that that comes with fire and it causes frustration or discontent? Um, Great question. Uh, I do have a high school age uh, student at home, as I've talked about before. Our teenager is uh, about to start senior year. So um, we fired uh, right before they went into high school. Um, And I would say... You know, for me, I I wouldn't say I find it frustrating. It's not the word I would use. Actually, you know, the the flip side of that, and I'm I'm not saying you're not thinking this either, is it's great to have more time available uh, uh, to spend with them before they go off to college or whatever, you know, your children are going to do. Um, We're definitely taking advantage of that. And Eric and I definitely discussed that uh, on the show. Um, I'll try to find that and link it in the show notes. But sure, Laurie and I in particular have at times, you know, kind of wondered about like, oh, what's it going to actually be like a a further year from now when we can travel how we want and we're not tied to the school calendar or, you know, to uh, other, you know, other kind of calendar-based things about, you know, having a teenager. Um, I wouldn't say frustrating, but we are definitely excited to think about what's coming. And so I'd say maybe if there is frustration— uh, that anyone is feeling, not just the, the individual who asked the question, I'd say, you know, maybe try to channel that energy into planning. You know, something we haven't done a great job of that Eric and Laura have, I think, really set a nice model for is kind of this possible futures idea. So as you know, uh, Eric is a few years um, planning to fire a few years after me. So he is still pre And so he's done a really nice job using tools like Notion um, to kind of think about and document their ideas for travel destinations and activities they'd like to do. And so they're kind of building that anticipation and excitement. Um, and maybe, you know, we, did, we could have done a better job of that it'd give us even more to look forward to. But there's probably not a perfect answer for this question. I, I wouldn't say we find it restricts our freedom, but we are definitely thinking about, well, how will things change? And, and what what are all the things we're looking forward to having complete or near complete freedom of our calendar? So- best wishes to you. Uh, Okay. Uh, Question from uh, Adam is uh, relating to that is, how did you think about your spend with kids in high school, uh, in high school versus post high school? Uh, I have four kids and this is one of my largest concerns with fire planning. Outside of college costs, how will my other expenses change? Uh, It's a great question, Adam. Um, I don't think for us we had tons of conversations about kind of or spent a lot of time financially modeling pre and post high school. It's also a very different circumstance. We have one child. You have four. Um, now, for us, college planning was something that we were fortunately able to do early, got into a 529 plan in the very early uh, days. And all kudos to Lori for her efforts there getting that started. But, you know, what it means is that, you know, we are now prepared to fund the type of college that we believe that uh, our teen is going to be heading into. And so I don't have to think too much about the college costs. Now, as for other costs, I think those are basically unknown. Uh, one thing we talked about on Two Sides of Fi is there's lots of unknowns. I mean, what if your child stays home with you longer than is you know traditionally the case? Well, that'd be an individual decision how you might need to fund that or or not. Right. That's a choice. But, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Will they need help with a down payment? And will you be in a position to help them with that? Or will you, you know, on the flip side, other family members. Right. Might you have an ill relative that you with your newly available free time might need to help support. So there's lots of things on the topic of family that are unknowable. Now, you could always put more buffer in your budgets and think about that. But for us, you know, those exercises are not only difficult, but we don't feel they're very productive. And so. Um, for us, you know, we haven't done a lot of explicit financial planning for those things, but we do wonder, you know, how accurate is the, like anything, how accurate is the budget that we've planned going to prove out to be? What are the unexpected changes that will come? We'll just have to deal with them, uh, as that happens. So certainly wishing you and your family the best. Um, and, uh, yeah, keep us posted on how that goes. Uh, next question is from Sean Leary. How far down your post-re bucket list of experiences have you managed to check off? What are your top three you're looking forward to or starting to plan for? Um, so, Sean, I think there the the maybe the disappointment is I've never been really a bucket list person. Um, Uh, you know, ticking off things. I had a couple of really basic things on my list. I think I talked about these pretty early. might have been on my blog, might have been on the show. You know, I I really wanted to make a specific uh, Mexican dish, uh, mole negro, the the black mole. I ended up making all of the uh, traditional Oaxacan moles. And um, that was as much about uh, retiring during lockdown for for COVID-19 restrictions as anything. But um, that's something I definitely wanted to do a small thing. And I did do it um, I wanted to try, you know, different forms of exercise or things that I hadn't done before. Um, that turned into something I never would have expected, which is taking really long walks. I've done these sort of marathon length uh, hikes um, and, and longer, and that's been really fun and unexpected. But I didn't have a super long list of things that I explicitly wanted to do um, in terms of looking forward. Um, I think that just traveling for longer periods of time, Lori and I really have this interest in doing longer stays abroad, you know, up to 90 days, which is the sort of visa limit in, in many circumstances, um, to really learn an area better or a country better, you know, move a few times around during that uh, you know, two or three month period and just get to experience an area in a way we never have before. Certainly, I think it's safe to say that's the thing we're both looking forward to more than anything about um, post-Fi life, but we haven't yet got to experience it at that level. The closest we did, uh, and I did write and talk about this extensively, was getting to take a five-week trip after COVID lockdowns ended to visit family and friends who we hadn't seen for more than a year and a half. Now, of course, if I were still working, We would never have been able to take that long of a time period off from work uh, or if Lori were working full time. Certainly we would have had some time available, but I can imagine it would have been tough to think about how to cram all those visits into a week or two, which would have been the longest we were able to take. So that was the first example of doing that longer travel we were able to do. A little different than the type of vacation planning we're thinking about, but definitely something we're looking forward to a lot. All right. Uh, Thank you for that question. Next up is from John Gilmore. Uh, He says, Thanks for all you do. Love the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, How about some merch, merchandise uh, in the future? Yeah, um, that's definitely an option. Certainly, having a uh, trained graphic designer as one half of Two Sides of Fi is not going to hurt us very much. I would say there hasn't been that much demand for it. It comes up time to time, but if that's something people actually want, you know, to get stickers or mugs or t shirts like a lot of channels have, go ahead and drop a note in the chat um, because that would help make the case for, you know, spending the time on that. You know, to be quite honest with you, You know, the show takes a lot of time to put together, particularly on the editing side. And that's all heavy lifting that Eric does. I I can't thank him enough for that. Um, And so to add to his burden in any way, you know, we just want to be really smart about the choices we take there. And so if there's enough demand for it and it's something that you guys want, let us know. Uh, It might be something that you see soon. There's certainly a lot of great print on demand options available. And Eric does do some of that for his 30 by 40 channel. For those who haven't seen that yet, uh, you definitely want to check it out. All right, uh, how do we have here? 401k Dexters, great name. How often do you rebalance to your stocks, to bond target, and what is that percentage? Uh, so asset allocation is one of the topics we've spent the most time on this show. Now, it has changed over time, so I'll have a few episodes to link there. be interesting for those who haven't seen them to start at the beginning and see where we ended up. But I can tell you, for starters, uh, at a high level, uh, I'm not going to be able to do it from memory down to the minutiae, but uh, Lori and I, our portfolio is 70% equities, 30% fixed income. Um... And we rebalance that twice a year. That's the frequency I've chosen. Um, For those who haven't studied into this deeply, one of the most common answers you'll hear about rebalancing frequency is it's more important to be consistent than anything, whether you go twice a year or annually, probably doesn't matter. Rebalancing very, very frequently, as some modeling has done, is probably, in some respects, the optimal way to do it. But in others, like tax-related, definitely not optimal. So, uh, Michael Kitsis is one of the people who has written about this. Karsten Jeska has written about this. Um, but we've opted to twice a year. It's part of my investing policy statement. So if you haven't seen that episode, I think it's com slash IPS. Check it out. Um, it's a prescribed process I do. And that doing it twice a year also allows me to generate income that I need by selling assets. So Our income primarily comes from either dividends, and of course those just happen automatically, uh, as well as sales of whatever assets we need to sell um, to fund our lifestyle. And so see that episode, which I'll link in the show notes for more on how we do that. All right, what have we got next? Lori's uh, filling the queue here. So uh, S. Stewart uh, is asking, do you have a legacy drawer for your family to continue when they might not have the knowledge to manage on their own? So if this is referring to kind of some of the financial and, you know, um, other operational expenses, uh, operational tasks that have to be done, absolutely. Uh, I do have that. I think Eric referred to that as a side letter of instruction at some point. Um, it's one of the things that when I, uh, first signed on with financial advisors, they asked me if I had, uh, and it came up again in talking to the, uh, the fee only advice only advisor. They also asked for the same type of thing. So yes, I have it. I've had it for years. I review it it with Lori once a year. I have a reminder every New Year's. That's when I update it, and then we sit down and talk about it. It's somewhere that's easily accessible. It's accessible in multiple locations electronically, and it simply you know defines all the accounts, the tasks that have to happen, You know, all the details to make it easy for her or for for whomever, an executor, for example, if something happened to both of us, to carry on tasks uh, for our lives. Because there is, you know, I do do the lion's share of that. It's how we've organized our financial life. Uh, It's what works best for us. Different families do different things. You may recall Eric handles a lot of the investment side where Laura hands the bill paying and other kind of more routine Uh, bookkeeping, financial tasks. So whatever you do, it's a great idea, if not an essential idea, to document that because the last thing any of us would want to do is, uh, you know, burden uh, those we leave behind if we pass away unexpectedly or otherwise or become debilitated somehow. So yes, have that. I think it's a great idea. It certainly helps me sleep better. And I think Lori as well. Um, So thanks for that question.
0: Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Phi. If you've been listening to Jason and I on the podcast, you may not be aware that we also have a YouTube channel. And quite often, we have supporting graphics, charts, information, and even a few outtakes that don't fit well in an audio format. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can find us on YouTube at Two Sides of Phi. All right, Michael
1: Martz asks. A uh, little, little easier to answer. Have you planned your JMT trip yet? Can't wait to hear your trail name. All right, so this is something that uh, Eric and I talked about on the uh, on the show. The JMT is the John Muir Trail. It's a very famous, very challenging hiking trail in the uh, Eastern Sierras in California. Among, uh, uh, and it has really varying terrain. It's very challenging. Much more altitude change than i've ever done in a hike and so uh, i don't think i'm quite ready for it yet but it's something i definitely you know pine for and hope that i'm able to do at some point i really want to see those uh, kind of stunning uh scenes that you can only see in the eastern sierra and so um, have not planned it i would like to do some longer uh hikes backpacking trips uh, um, pretty soon honestly Uh, it'll get me out of my own area which is rather hot this time of year anyhow so i'd say stay tuned uh that could be good cause for a conversation with eric or or otherwise on the channel in fact eric and i and laura and Lori, our spouses were talking when they were out here about maybe doing a grand canyon trip something that we both have experience with at different levels over the years and would be a really cool thing to do together so stay tuned and i have no idea what my trail name will be but i'm sure it will be entertaining uh, next question is from Doug Scrub J. It says, how do you find ACA Affordable Care Act? Uh, we have a bronze high deductible with HSA plan. Same as me. Uh, it's affordable, air quotes, but it's really easy to drain the HSA with one medical event. Very true. Do you qualify for tax credit? So uh, we have done some extensive episodes on healthcare. I will definitely link the one where we go into depth on ACA so that you have that. But... Um, Yes, uh, it is a very real possibility on a uh, a high deductible plan to burn a lot of money. Uh, You know, if your family limit is $14,000 in a year, for example, that's a lot of money. And, And some people would say you should plan your budget, you know, to be incredibly conservative so that if you had to pay that, you should have that amount allocated every single year. Now, I don't. I pick a sort of an in-between level based on what our family medical history has been like to date and our age. And that will change, obviously, as we age. And right now, we had decided a bronze plan makes sense. We've been on it for several years. We've always felt good about the amount we're spending versus the premiums. Yes, we do qualify for a subsidized rate based on our income. I've discussed that as well. And so our premiums are quite low, although out of pocket up to a certain point is our responsibility. And it can be a lot. And if you are relying on your HSA, as many do to fund those expenses, it's helpful to have that because it's not changing your drawdown from your portfolio. But of course, it's draining a triple tax advantage asset. And that's the reason many people like uh, a high deductible health plan because they can contribute to HSA. We to date have chosen not to touch our HSA. We're fortunate that um, we had budgeted for a certain amount of a healthcare spend in our uh, budget every month it's a sinking fund that we don't always use all of and then so it builds up and that means that we're not touching the hsa so we have this you know lumpy spend on healthcare, and in most months we're below that limit we have in our budget now this month i mentioned we have two uh, emergency room visits plus i had a dental implant last month All those things were out of pocket. And yes, insurance contributed to the medical expenses, not the dental. I don't carry dental insurance. Um, So we had a lot of -of out-of-pocket spending. Now, because of the way we've set up our structure here, and I'm not saying this is the only way or the best way. It's just what we do. Um, Yes, I went outside my budgeted amount for health care for those months. But because we're spending under our safe withdrawal rate, I didn't feel too bad about needing to dip into the funds and go above it because we're still on the year well below what our maximum withdrawal rate could be. If you're somebody who's chosen to operate closer to that line, well, then your lumpy spending, whether it's in your HSA or otherwise, is going to result in drawing down your portfolio more. Now, if that's a one-time event and it's um, you know up to the max that I talked about, that's probably not going to fundamentally change your long-term projections for your the the lifetime of your portfolio. But if this happens more often and you haven't adjusted to a higher-tier plan where the premiums might be worth it. Well, that could be having more negative impact over time. So healthcare is definitely something you want to revisit on an annual basis. If you, you know for any kind of insurance, you're doing that anyway, because unless you have a qualifying event annually is how often we get to review those policies and choose what to do. So I'd say definitely do those activities in earnest as we're going to do. We're going to make sure at the end of this year that plan still makes sense. Maybe we will switch to a silver plan because the increase in premium will make sense we do that math every year, uh, and last year, I still felt it was a no-brainer to stay on the metal tier we were at, but maybe that will change in the future. So stay tuned. Assuredly, Eric and I will continue to talk about this topic. It's a big line item in both of our budgets. If you saw our budget episode, you know that. So um, yeah, look to us, and we'll, we'll come for more information on how we're doing with these questions. All right. Um, let's see this. Uh, JPK has a question. What do you miss most about your previous career? What was the biggest social challenge for your entire family with the transition? There's some meaty stuff in there. Definitely things I've tackled in, in writing for sure. Uh, it was one of the things that helped me process that change after I was suddenly hit in the face with realizing how much uh, that change affected me. But also Eric and I have talked about it on the show. Um, what do I miss maybe on the easier side? Well, commonly like everybody, the social interaction, the workplace kind of collision in the hallway with people and just getting to chat with people you've worked with for years, maybe if not your whole career for some folks, um, having those lunches, you know, venting together, that kind of sharing of experiences, uh, sharing in your successes and triumphs, you know, honestly, what was affecting me the most though, Uh, I realized, and and talking to Lori about it really helped, you know, she was calling me out on some of the ways I was acting, and rightfully so, in those first six months, really, was um, I missed that sense of accomplishment, of achievement, of just recognition. Um, I never thought of myself as being recognition-driven, but turns out uh, many of us get so many intangible things from work outside of compensation, and when those go away, you either need to find a new source for them or learn to not have them be so important to you. And neither of those are easy. And but the former is at least something you can plan for. And I had done no planning for it. I hadn't really thought about, and this is why I talk about it so much with people now uh, on on fire, Discords, on Reddit and elsewhere, is you know, just doing the exercise, sitting sitting down and thinking about what do I get from work before you retire? What do I get that I think I'll miss? Or I'm not sure how I'm gonna uh, replace it. Uh, for me, another thing was that feeling of satisfaction that comes from mentoring, seeing your employees on your team succeed, helping them grow and, and you know, promoting them into opportunities where they can kind of stretch and, and build new skills. And when that went away, you know, I had been supervising people for most of my career and, and in the end, very, very large teams. So I had so many opportunities to do this. It, it was just completely gone. And so that's not one I found a, a perfect ability to replace yet, but I have had more success than some of the others. So I would say those are definitely some of the things I missed. Uh, the biggest social challenge with the family, going to the second part of the question, while well, moving during COVID-19 lockdown was not great. Right. Moving into a new town, that feeling of isolation, having to reestablish yourself when you don't have the workplace as a common point of meeting people. I mean, that's huge. Right. And so there's there's nothing you can do about the work itself. Right. The work goes away. However, um, activities are something that you can, you know, get into, you know, clubs. Some people, it could be their church. It could be volunteering you know, I tried several of those things. I've done volunteering. I uh, probably most impactfully took on a, a once a week fun job, as I like to refer to, just pouring wine at a tasting room in town. And that was really great. Uh, you meet people, you get that socialization part. Sounds like you're training pets when you say socialization, but it's, it's honestly really important. And it, it's not at all what I did for my career, but still scratched a lot of the same itches so that was a very personal thing um, as for the family i mean um it differs by person right teenager school is going to be the biggest opportunity um, i think Lori and i together met some people through shared interests we started a home brewing club we've both been brewing beer for for more than 25 years that was a great opportunity to meet some like-minded people um, and through them we have met other people and now do more activities Uh, with folks. And so we've built in some mechanisms that should hopefully keep uh, helping us. Uh, Lori also got uh, a fun job uh, once a week, works at a brewery, uh, met some folks through there. So, you know, it's an ongoing thing. And we kind of had more than a year of not making a lot of progress for the reasons I mentioned, but it's gone a lot better now. So um, certainly, uh, if you're asking that because you're headed into this yourself, or if anyone listening to this is there, uh, I hope any of that is helpful to you. And certainly, if you have other ideas of things that have helped you, please drop them in the chat. Um, uh, us, everybody here could, could probably benefit from that. So thanks for asking. Uh, okay. Uh, sorry again if I pronounce this wrong. Uh, Yoandri Torres, hi, love your show. Thank you. I'm on the road to fire. I feel impatient as I count down the years. Did you ever feel impatient before achieving fire? If so, how did you manage it? 100%. Um, and I've said it on the show before. I'll say it again. I am so glad for me, just this is about me and how my brain works, that I didn't really know about the fire community until the latter years of my own path because I think I would have been somebody who was really fixated and had graphs going and just tracked them, you know, to the minutia. and every time it took a dip down, kind of big sigh and uh you know it's hard to remember all those tenets that we know are true like you know market downturns or buying opportunities right you're buying at fire sale prices it's only going to go higher um and you know i've been open about the fact that there was a discord i used to spend a lot of time on and i had to really back away from it because i just kept hearing this type of commentary over and over again and, and that wasn't fair of me to judge it that's you know they're at a different stage in their journey than me and they were fixating on the downturn because they were excited about um the uh, future and yeah, that kind of gallows humor can be really healthy for folks. Um, it's not how I'm wired. Um, I don't like to fixate on the negative. I like to just keep <laughs> keep my eye on the positive. I am a realist. I don't just mean to say I'm an optimist, pie in the sky person. But um, for me, that was you know kind of just a, a realization as a post five person that that wasn't kind of the best uh, kind of environment for me. But um, I did feel impatient at times. I would say most tangibly in the last couple of years um, because i knew i was approaching phi Uh, i saw it coming and then was like okay you know here we are and eventually got there and so that part of impatience ended but also for my own reasons i wanted to work another year past my phi date it was work related it was you know for so many reasons uh, wanting to save for down payment for our home when we moved we were going to move to a new area i had some projects i was participating in that i wanted to remain a part of and so that last year was the hardest part i definitely did not uh, have a calendar that i was crossing off days one year in advance i did admittedly use an app that i could look at periodically and see how many days were remaining I don't remember if I did that a year out, but I definitely did it at least six months out. Um, And then finally, once I got down to the last three months, I was definitely checking days off a calendar. And what became really difficult is when I approached my RE date and I decided to extend my work three months because this was during the pandemic. I worked in a part of the healthcare industry where we were contributing to developing testing. And so I decided to stay on three months because I was on the leadership team and I felt it was you know kind of inappropriate personal decision to leave um, in the midst of this crisis without kind of finishing up the things that I had signed up to help with and so extended another three months. So that last three months was the hardest because I really had a date in mind. I was so close and then had to extend. Now, um, I that doesn't. Com- I don't mean to compare that with the impatience. Some people might feel when they are years out kind of looking at that graph and those projections and imagining what that could be like. Um, that's dip, much more difficult to manage and i i suspect anything that i did to manage my one year out impatience is not going to be as helpful for somebody who's many years out i would just say at a high level remember that life is to be lived none of us knows how many years we get vertical on this planet and so while fire may be a goal for everybody who's you know a part of this community remember that as fritz you know has mentioned several times you need to think about the trade offs we're making we want to get to that goal but we want to spend time with the people in our lives and enjoy it and so just like you have to think about how frugal should i be to get to that date that much sooner right this is another example of you know, fixating on this too much can be pretty deleterious for our, our, our mental health. And so um, I'd say focus on the, the constructive, try to get things on autopilot as much as you can, put systems in place for automatic investing. Um, some people like to use automatic rebalancing too. I don't, but many do. But if it helps you make it easier and more hands off, that could be something to do. But I'd say... Be mindful of, you know, kind of spending too much time on the numbers and fixating on continually moving around potential phi dates, for example. Spend more time thinking about possible futures, how you'd like to spend your time, the more optimistic side of things. You might find that a very healthy alternative um, to kind of, you know, thinking about that, uh, you know, impatience and and wanting to get there. So thank you for the question. Uh, I expect that's not a, a perfect answer for you, but hopefully I've given you some things to think about. Um, Question from uh, Alwyn, how much did the final number, your fire number, differ from the number you expected when you were 30 to 40 years old in percentage? Um, I think by the time we were 40, we were pretty good uh, towards our number. Now it's a very different question if you ask about how we were doing, um, thinking 25 or 30 years old, uh, because that's really when we were establishing ourselves on what became known as a fire path. For us, Lori and I just knew we wanted to retire early. We talked about this, I think, in the spouses episodes. That's a two-part series uh, that I can link as well. Um, But we talked about retiring on what would now be referred to as a lean fire budget, right? Moving somewhere like St. Lucia, living a simpler life, um, and that number changed dramatically as we aged because we realized we just wanted different things. We wanted to travel and are pretty low key people and low key travel means lower expense travel as well. And you could do more of it. So that's always been an appealing idea, but we also realized a lot of the creature comforts of life are very attractive to us. And the older we get, you know, just like most people, the more we're conscious about that. And so the number changed, Um, it more than doubled. Over time, I think by if you compare where we started to where we ended, it would say it more than tripled, but it stabilized for sure by the time we were uh, over 40. And again, spending more time in this community, thinking more about budgeting and what was important to us versus what is nice to have, we definitely were able to uh, kind of think more specifically about what we wanted. And, and just to be frank with you, over time, as our income increased, even though we were proportionally continuing to increase our savings rate, we were still able to live you know, more comfortably. And so you become more, you know, familiar with having certain things in your life and you get to choose on a fire path, whether you want that to continue or whether you will dial that back or up as many people do. So it's an individual question, but that's kind of how we thought about the number and how it changed over time. Uh, KG has a question. Do you arrange your bucket strategy in retirement, and non-retirement accounts separately or as a whole? So I think this is really an asset allocation question, if I'm not mistaken, KG. Um, I think about it holistically, right? I have uh, taxable accounts. I have tax-deferred accounts like 401ks and IRAs, and I have tax-free accounts like Roth IRAs. And so I think about them as a whole. Um, I rebalance using the idea that money is fungible, right? We can make changes in one account, make them in another on net. It's the same thing. That's a very simple way of answering it. Now there's more complexity because of course, uh, I am, you know, 50 years old. So that means I'm not touching those retirement assets for quite a while at this point. Right. And I'm not taking advantage of some of the ways to, uh, access those assets earlier Right. As many people uh, are planning to do and as many bloggers cover frequently, how that how can you touch retirement assets early? Early. I'm in the position where my brokerage account is sufficient to cover this bridge period. Um, until I'm able to access my retirement assets. And so that does mean I have to think twice about what kinds of things I may want in one account versus another just for ease of rebalancing. Yes, money is fungible. So many would argue, you know, keep to the rules about what to keep in taxable accounts versus uh, retirement accounts. I am not as strict about that, um, because I like the ease that comes with it. And so um, but I do ap- absolutely think about tax drag and some of those other aspects of asset location, i.e. where you have those funds, for example, uh, versus just asset allocation, which is the big picture. So I rebalance the portfolio as a whole for sure. Uh, if you haven't seen our discussions on rebalancing, they're available to you. Definitely check out twosidesoffhi.com slash rebalancing for a free tool that I use that I developed. And then I, I uh, exported a version of it to be shared with the Two Sides of Fi audience. It's totally free. It's available to you. If you want a tool, uh, I would also recommend, uh, empower, which used to be called personal capital. If you go to the resources page on sides of com, you'll see a link to that. Uh, it's completely free. It's worth checking out and it's a way to support the show. If you use that link, um, and you use personal capital again, totally use it for free as a great way to look at your asset allocation and see the changes you may want to make. Um, the show gets a small bonus from them. So think about checking it out. But you also can use the spreadsheet. Um, let's see. Janet Pollard, do you still keep a cash-like emergency bucket outside of your portfolio? And if needed, uh, is that draw considered part of your percentage withdrawal? Great question, Janet. Um, as you, may, as some of you may recall, uh, Erica held me to task at some point because in addition to my cash allocation, and cash includes money market funds, T-bills, CDs, things that are easily sellable, right? They're they're basically cash. Um, I also had a six-month emergency fund. And so I really had a -a two-and-a-half-year cash allocation. So that wasn't quite right. Uh, Eric, rightfully, when he realized that, asked me why uh, and, and helped me realize there was no reason to keep it up. And so I did get rid of that explicit emergency fund allocation because... Carrying such a large cash buffer, you know, around 5% of my portfolio, that is more than I need to be. And so having an investment policy statement, an IPS, really helps me keep clear on those aspects of the portfolio so I don't have an explicit fund anymore. As I mentioned earlier, if I do have to go outside of my normal spending, uh, my normal budget for reasons like, you know, medical emergencies or both cars suddenly need tires or... Pets have urgent medical needs. All these things happened in the last 60 days, by the way. Um, we can go to those funds, and they're there for us because we're keeping two years of cash. Um, and in our case, it's half money market, half um, uh, T-bills and CDs. So the former are immediately liquid. The latter are absolutely able to be liquidated if needed. I can feel much more comfortable. I don't need an, another explicit emergency fund. Um, Uh, K.G. asks, when calculating your buckets, do you separate a fund for large future expenses such as a roof, AC, etc.? So this is a great question you ask. It's something we did discuss um, a little bit with Fritz Gilbert. I think it was in our one-on-one episode with him. Uh, So I'll link that in the show notes, too. He's written about this extensively, and he absolutely, explicitly budgets These these larger sinking funds for things like, you know, roof replacement, Um, Laurie and I have elected not to what I and the reason we haven't done that is I've done enough modeling using things like the SWR toolbox, which I refer to as often as I do because I earnestly use it uh, myself. Um, I had no relationship with Karsten when I started using it so much, uh, if that wasn't evident to you before, but, but it's true. So I would do these exercises where I would model in, well, what happens if I want to replace the AC, right? We have where we live, it's hot. We have central air conditioning. What if I have to replace that? What if the roof fails sooner than we think it will, or we need to replace several appliances or when it comes time to buy a new car, I've done that math of showing those draws, you know, as lump sums in the tool. Um, And I convinced myself that I don't necessarily need to do that type of budgeting because underdrawing is such a part of our strategy. Now, is that a perfect answer? It's not. But, you know, got to tell you, this is an individual thing. You need to think about what's going to help you feel good about your strategy and work mathematically. Some people absolutely want and and will always have these larger sinking funds for long-term expenses that they, they just contribute to, you know, month over month. Whatever's going to help you feel like you're managing your expenses properly, both known and unknown future expenses, is the right thing to do for you. I would definitely check out uh, what Fritz has written on this topic because he gives simple templates for, you know, figuring this out and and kind of constructing your own approach to doing the same thing. Um, So I definitely recommend that. Great question. Uh, Aztec for life. Um, healthcare remains our biggest concern area. We're four months into COBRA. It's the same way I started as well, uh, continuing my workplace insurance at one point. Uh, what resources do you use or know of that are helpful in building comprehensive knowledge around this area? Um, there's no one source for this for sure. Uh, we did link to a number of resources in both of our healthcare episodes, which I will link in the show notes again, twosidesoffi.com slash AMA. That's ask me anything, by the way, um, that we have found, and hopefully that will help you. Um, if anyone else has ideas around resources, please drop them in the comments um, and or comment on this video once it goes live. Healthcare.gov for Americans certainly is a very useful starting point. Um, if you are state, has its own managed healthcare exchange, you'll get redirected to the state site. If you're one of the states that has the federal government system manage their plan, then you'll stay on healthcare.gov. But either way, there are calculators available that show you that. There are definitely some good blog posts out there on comparing or how to think about um, private insurance versus ACA. All of these questions are obviously about pre-Medicare uh, in the U.S., of course, the, the calculus changes. But it's a complex question because depending upon your income level post-RE, you might be eligible for things like cost-sharing reductions, CSRs, where your out-of-pocket expenses become quite low um, for healthcare. And so knowing those different options to you is really important. It is an individual answer. So many people also like the idea of going to healthcare insurance brokers who can present the different options to you that are tailored to your specific plan. So I certainly am not uh, equipped, educated enough to be able to guide individually what people should do. But but looking at the resources like you've asked for is definitely a great place to start. Uh, Thanks for the question. Uh, uh, Nick Johnson, uh, asks, I think I heard in a previous recording, you're doing extreme or ultra walking. How's that going? Uh, so I touched on this a little bit with that JMT question, but, um, you know, a lot of that was, you know, just kind of proving to myself that I could do 20, 30 mile walks. Um, and so I did that and I did one fairly recently again, I did another 20 mile walk. Um, but, I have this thought of trying to transition to backpacking. I'm still not certain that it's the right answer for me, but I have done uh, some several day backpacking trips. Um, We've done some shorter family ones. Those are fun, but I I still have yet to challenge myself to a a week long one or a two week long one. I just went through this period where I was incessantly watching YouTube videos about people who do just that. Um, So I really need to get off my rear end, uh, especially now that we're in a nice time of year and plan something. So I would say, It's a work in progress. Um, I would love to do both long backpacking and long uh, walks or, you know, kind of more urban or suburban hikes. Um, So perhaps you'll hear me talking about both in the near future. So it's a a good reminder that I've got more work to do there. So stay tuned. Uh, Okay. So uh, Jason says, my wife enjoys the videos with Lori and Laura. So do I. Those are our spouses, by the way. Uh, involved in the discussion as she relates to some of their comments. Any more guest appearances from them in upcoming episodes? So I'm going to resist the temptation to look to my right at where Lori is sitting and and get her buy-in or not. Um, Both Lori and Laura um, don't love being on camera. We were so grateful they were willing to do it. There's been a lot of calls for them to come back on the show. Uh, I have joked several times that maybe the, the most amazing way would be have them firing questions at us, Um, and maybe that would get them on the show, but I would say, um, I am hopeful that we can get one or both of them on again, um, for some kind of content. Can't say what that would be at this point, but perhaps hearing that there's interest and drop comments in the chat. If you're one of those people that wants to see them, maybe, uh, hearing a little more firsthand about what the demand is for their time will convince them. Um, but, uh, so stay tuned. Let's say I I will hope that. So I'll link to the episodes with Lori and Laura in the show notes so that if you haven't seen them, um, those who haven't seen them, you'll be able to view them. All right. Thanks for the question, Jason. Hmm. Scott Salter asks, how much advance notice did you give your employer that you were retiring? a good question did they try to get you to stay longer offer you more money did they treat you differently after you gave notice great questions this is certainly going to be an individual thing so uh for anyone else who is over the re line this would be a great thing to give feedback in the chat or in comments to the video for me it was pretty easy to be honest i had been um, working for the same uh, executive for a number of years and working closely with them even if not directly for them for that whole time uh, and so we developed a certain level of trust. And so when I had reached, I think it was about a year, maybe 18 months before my intended RE date, and it was still a moving target at that point, I decided to disclose that I was willing, uh, that I was interested in, in retiring early and, and roughly what that timeline would be. Uh, now the funny thing is that they shared with me their own, uh, plans, uh, for retirement at that time, which was great. Uh, so we had a point to relate on, but, um, but. But it has to do with the fact that I was confident it would be received in the spirit it was intended. It wouldn't be judged unfairly. I wouldn't be treated differently. And so I wasn't, to be honest with you. And that's all credit to my former boss, um, who was a seasoned executive, you know, a great people leader and just understood how to manage people uh, and was a great mentor in a variety of ways. So all credit to them. Um, as to when pe- more people were informed, uh, you know, based on the nature of my role, and my role did change the last eighteen months of my job. That was an, an intentional move by me to sort of start to down ramp my responsibility level. Uh, while t- so, I took a lateral move with uh, without a giant organization. I had previously been overseeing an organization of nearly two hundred and fifty people. Um, to uh, kind of a lead by influence role so that allowed me to kind of downramp my responsibilities for that last year and a half so that made it uh, such that I didn't have to inform so many people months in advance my boss knew I informed the rest of the leadership team that I served on about a month before and then we made an announcement to the whole company um, weeks before if I remember right hard to remember now it's strangely enough. I don't know if I was treated super differently by most people. I think the, I would say the biggest difference was people wanted to know what I was going to do next, because to be quite honest, I was pretty vague. I didn't say use the word retirement. I talked about moving out of the area and maybe starting something on my own, which was an accurate response. I thought I might want to do some kind of project like a brewery or something like that. Um, and so it was left vague, but that was okay. So I think interest in why I was changing paths was the biggest change in how people treated me. But other than that, no, uh, I'm happy to say, uh, things went very well for me overall. And I hope that they do for anybody else when you're faced with the very same decision.
0: Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Phi, checking in with a quick request. Jason and I love making this show and sharing our conversations, but we need your help spreading the word. The best way to do that is to give us a quick rating and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you know someone on the Phi path, please hit that share button on your favorite episode. Every little bit helps. Thanks.
1: Okay. Um... Making zero one asks, after running the numbers and being comfortable that current expenses are covered, they're still worried that in the future I'll want to increase expenses but be constrained. Have you experienced that three years into being retired? That's a tough one um, because there's no great answer. Um, Eric would tell me and accuse me correctly of saying I put safety margins on safety margins sometimes in my budget, and that's true sometimes. Um, The biggest example would just be withdrawing below what our maximum is possible, I don't think we padded the individual items in the budget so much. And I think a good example of that was, you know, when we saw grocery prices spike and stay high, let's be honest with ourselves, due to inflation, um, I was finding having to allocate more and more money to that category in my budget that that I had several years of data on before retirement. It just turned out to be insufficient. Um, Now that that could happen in every other area too, right? What if the type of travel we want to do changes? I think Eric and I talked about this in a pretty recent episode. Well, the only answer is either you pad everything much bigger or you accept the risk that you may need to have trade-offs. And I, I think we've more tended towards the latter, but have also withdrawn below our safety net over time. And especially in these initial years, post RE and especially given the market conditions we had starting in my second year, uh, post retirement. Right. Um, and I think that's served us well. Um, but as to whether they will blow up, the expenses will blow up in the future. Well, it depends on what your future is and what your timeline is, right? If you retire and Karsten has written about this extensively, if you retire at 30 and you have to plan for a potential 60 year or more retirement, right? Depends on you, your family, your genetics, the future of medicine, well then your safety margin is very different than somebody who retires at 50 or 47 like I did. Um, And so it's a very individual question. I would say the younger you're retiring and the tighter you've kept your expenses leading up to your fine number, right? If you've been really living a lean existence and thinking it's gonna be exactly the same post RE, I'd say you certainly have more risk in that scenario. Our lifestyle didn't change Really very much after we uh, crossed the RE line. And so I think the risk is less there. Um, I'm trying to mitigate that with a withdrawal strategy. But there are, again, other approaches like padding, we've definitely done some healthy padding. Um, So I hope that's helpful. Uh, It's not perfect, but you certainly need to know that the future is not assured. There's no certainty for any of us that we will think the same way when we are 50 than we do at 30. And that's the other caution there. If you are planning your expenses at a future retirement date that's 25 years away, so let's say you're 20 years old watching this, planning on retiring at 45, accept the fact that you will not I say that with certainty, know exactly what you want at 45. You may have a better idea than I did at 20. It's probably likely, but I got to tell you, I've been surprised all along the way about how priorities change. So just be open to that idea. Be open to refining the number as you proceed down your FIRE journey. Most people find that the resolution around that number, the accuracy around it increases with time. You'll probably find the same. So just be aware of that. Be open to planning, and if that means extending your timeline to get the life that you want to live, well, that should be the thing leading the charge, not a flag in the sand saying, you know, 2030, that's the year no matter what, because you're going to have to take trade-offs. That brings me back to the earlier episodes about, you know, how not to fire. Uh, so don't add unnecessary risk, and best wishes to you in, in whatever you end up doing. Uh, okay, Um Alexandria, MD, I'm curious about why you decided to sell during the bear market to refill bucket one because I thought the purpose of buck is to be able to live off the cash bucket during down market. That's a great question. And you're not wrong for somebody following the three bucket strategy. I'm not actually following uh, the three bucket strategy. While I early on in retirement, I thought I had set myself up with that mentality and and believed that was going to be my approach. It's not actually. Um, I decided to be more managing the portfolio from a total return perspective, and, you know, yes, having parameters around asset allocation that are now maintained in an IPS, which I did not have until, it feels like a year ago, Um, I would recommend having one much sooner. Now I do rebalance on that schedule. Now, of course, I maintain a sufficiently healthy cash buffer so that if, as someone like Fritz does, I don't want to sell for some tragic reason in the market. I have the flexibility to not do that. I would be violating my IPS if I choose to do that, but never say never. Um, If you haven't seen the episode uh, with uh, Fritz and Karsten talking uh, to us about this idea of bucket strategy versus uh, a more traditional withdrawal approach, I would absolutely recommend it. I will link it in the show notes. And importantly... The original two blog articles that go with that, that Fritz wrote and Karsten wrote, and each of them responded in the same, I would absolutely recommend that as good background because it's an intelligent discussion about the topic. Uh, Neither are wrong, uh, although Karsten feels pretty strongly that uh, just a bucket strategy is essentially window dressing um, for the for his strategy, um, have a look at it because you want you're going to want to decide for yourself. So uh, I did not let market conditions dictate what I would do. So does that mean I was selling bonds and I was selling them uh, as they were down because they were more highly correlated with equities than they had been in previous years? Yes, I did. But here I am uh, sitting here now uh, sometime after that. My portfolio was up around 9% on the year net of my withdrawals. So I don't feel too bad about where we are presently. Uh, Net worth day was yesterday. So that's my portfolio increase is around 9%. Um, So I feel pretty good about that. So um, we can all argue about mathematical perfection versus um, psychological benefit of one strategy versus the other. It's an individual choice, so not judging if anyone is doing that or saying my way is the right way. It's just what Lori and I have elected to do. Thanks so much for the question. Um, Aaron says, you talked about your asset allocation in a recent video. I think you remember me mentioning you have a small allocation alternative assets. Can you elaborate on what alternatives you own? Um, That was in the past. That is very true, Aaron. I used to have things like uh, some preferred stock funds, I had a, um, I can't remember the name of this fund, stable value fund, which has a lot of kind of hedging strategies built into it. My financial advisors were big funds of both of those. Um, Obviously people like uh, uh, Karsten Jeska are big fans of preferred stocks. Um, I elected to uh, sunset both of those. And uh, for me, that was a part of simplifying my strategy. I'm not a pure boglehead, but I absolutely have very strong tendencies towards that viewpoint and really started to make moves when it was appropriate in my portfolio to get to a simpler asset allocation. So I believe uh, we have content that shares my current Asset allocation, which doesn't have any alternatives in it whatsoever. Now, I will say these days I do have a very small, what I call cowboy account. I did borrow that term from the uh, the advice only planner that I talked to uh, more than a year ago now. Uh, we have a very small percentage of the portfolio. It's honestly right now a few percent. He told me uh, you should be comfortable having up to 5% um, to mess around with. That sounds like a lot for me, and I think a lawyer would agree. Uh, but I do uh, do things like... Uh, sell options i do have some small positions in single stocks that are, are just interesting to me like lithium mining right around the uh, you know i'm a big believer in evs long-term holder of tesla Um, So that's just a little fun position. But these aren't things that are going to move the needle. So while I still may invest in things that are more alternative, it's not I'm not going to be somebody who um, has large positions in a hedge fund, for example. It just doesn't make sense with my worldview. I want to keep fees low. I want to keep diversity in my portfolio. um, And I just want to really just set it and forget it for the most part, barring regular rebalancing. So great question. Uh, I see there's been multiple requests to promote the Discord channel. That's awesome in the chat. So that's easy. Uh, Discord is a free chat client. Uh, You may use this already or you may use Slack at work. It's very similar. It's still free. It has both a web uh, client, which is great. Uh, but it also has uh, local and mobile apps also freely available. If you want to check out that community, uh, I think it's going really well so far. So kudos to those of you who've helped make it really fun uh, so far. Uh, That has more to do with you than it does with me or Eric. Just go to twosidesoffi.com slash discord. That's D-I-S-C-O-R-D. And that will uh, give you a, uh, that's an invite to the server. And then you can go from there. And uh, there's a ready community of people willing to help you out if you have any questions about how it works but uh, i'm on there quite regularly so uh, if anything i say here piques your interest uh, go ahead and comment on the youtube video but um, there's always an opportunity to get more depth when i'm online so check out the discord all right uh, what have we got here Uh, i can't pronounce that it might be shike or s hike says ever considered buying a business to run yes with your corporate experience, it seems like this could be right up your alley. If not, why not? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I um, I think about this all the time. Uh, <laughs> I, I have pretty diverse experience uh, in the business world, but I also have lots of other experience before my professional career started. I've worked at various restaurants, just as one example. I know... The brewery industry quite well. I'm starting to really understand the wine world after several years of being involved in that. And so the idea of buying a commercial business, either as a silent owner or a more active owner, uh, is attractive. I have been on commercial real estate email lists for years, even before I retired, just because it's fascinating to just it provokes Dreaming, right? brainstorming, thinking about opportunities. I like that idea, and it is a diversification uh, play in many respects, as well as potentially something to be more engaged with. And so I do think about it. I've taken no hard moves. Um, you know, I, I haven't even had any in-person meetings about it. So, so far, it's been consumption of listings, a few discussions with Lori about ideas I've had that we've had. I think both of us right now, uh, one thing we're pretty confident in is, and we've only decided this in recent years, right? I told you before I stopped working. I actually thought I might want to start a small brewery. Um, that we don't want to, we don't want to start a brick and mortar business um, that we need to manage. That just feels like tying us down and committing to something at this stage, at least. Right? Answer could be different in five years, ten years, whatever. Um, And it would take us away from our goals. And we want to travel and we want to see the world more and have that really have that time freedom. Doing this one day a week job has taught me that even that, you know, which is a small sacrifice, right, Uh, eight hours of time um, sometimes feels like too much. And I'm really fortunate. And honestly, I wouldn't have taken the job if I didn't have this that I have business owners who are very willing to allow me to travel as much as I want. They like my work. We get along well. And so they have ability to have people substitute for me when I'm going to travel. I'm actually going to take four weeks off uh, coming up from that job because of various you know, personal engagements and travel, and that's okay. And, again, I'm really fortunate, and I would recommend anybody thinks on taking on that kind of work, that kind of fun job, Think about your flexibility and your time freedom a lot before committing because it matters. So I would say right now, to go back to the point, we don't want to start our own brick and mortar business. Now, might we be willing to partner with somebody else or acquire a business that's uh, more of a a backseat type owner? Maybe. So stay tuned. Maybe my answer there will change. Uh, Okay, what have we got? Uh, KG asks, when you were 10 years out from retirement, did you already have a 70, 30 split or were you more aggressive? If so, when did you change? That's pretty easy. Um, I think I was, I was 90, 10 for most of the time. And that was both individually, although I, I now knowing what I know, I would have been probably just a hundred percent at age 20. I wasn't much of a bogle head, but it was diverse. Um, but I was nine, definitely 90, 10 in my thirties and forties. I would say as we started to approach RE the last maybe 18 months or so, um, we slowly, we got up to 20% and I retired at about 80-20. And then from my own research, um, supported by additional conversations with an advice-only planner, I did increase that to 70-30. And we did talk about that on the show. Eric and I, you may recall, he also changed his portfolio to 70-30 when he believed he was... Um, you know, within less than two years to RE, a date he's now pushed out a little bit. Um, but he backtracked on that. Uh, he, he, you know, rode down that bond allocation a little bit, talked to Karsten about it. Another reason to check out that episode. You can kind of understand his and Laura's thinking about why they went 70-30 and then what changed uh, in their thinking. So um, that's that's the story. So now I'm at 70-30, but I definitely wasn't, um, you know, five years before... Uh, R.E., for example. Uh, Scott Salter asks, what do you think about target date uh, funds? For example, someone who wants to be real hands off and not have to rebalance once a year. Would it be wise to put all my money in one or two of these funds? Um, Most financial advisors I know are fans of them for starting, especially from a hands off perspective. Others, especially true bogleheads, would say, well, their, their fees are a little higher. Why not just replicate the allocation they have? Um, it's simple enough. They all disclose the relative amounts of which funds are in those target date funds. Um, so I'm not against them, especially if it keeps you from making impulsive decisions. Um, you may find that that small increase in fees, especially when you're young and maybe more impulsive like many of us are, if that helps you be hands-off, you know, who am I to say that that's a bad strategy? I did use them uh, early on in my career myself, um, so not against them at all. But I would say think about the options there. If you're willing to do the small adjustments yourself over time and, and are willing to learn how to do that, it's a very inexpensive and easy thing to do. You could just model your own allocation after theirs. I would definitely recommend check out the Bogleheads subreddit for those of you who use Reddit or use the Bogleheads uh, Message board, uh, the forum, I think it's really a great resource to learn about simple three and four fund allocations and how you might approach that yourself without using a target date fund, but I definitely don't have a a problem with target date funds. Um, Let's see. Uh, Daryl Q asks, uh, what are my thoughts on the book Die with Zero by Bill Perkins? I'm pretty sure Eric and I talked about this. He read it before I did. I read it much more recently. So I read it post RE. I think it's a valuable book, particularly for just introducing the idea of there being more than one way to go through life. Right. Most of us are programmed by our environments, by the influences in our lives before we learned about fire, that there's a way you do things. Right. You go to school. Maybe you go to college, maybe you go to trade school, maybe you start working and you do your career, you try to increase your pay, and at some point you retire. Now, depending upon your career and whether you have a pension or not and what country you live in, maybe it's 60, 65, 70, or question mark. Um, You know, the fire path ideas that come out of books like Die with Zero are more about well, how do I get to the life I want to live sooner? Right. And so I think Die With Zero is a great and easily digestible book to introduce those ideas. Does it oversimplify some things? Um, Did he have a very different path there uh, via, you know, kind of being a a stock trader than necessarily anybody could do? Uh, You know, it's just like saying that um, you know, somebody who's a software engineer has a different path to fire than others do or an or, or a executive. Of, of course, there there are differences, but the tenets remain completely valid. So it's a great book to introduce people. Um, there are others. Right. I mean, if you want to talk about investing simplicity, obviously, Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins is another one um, the There's a lot out there. So I think it's a good and easily digestible book. It's not a perfect roadmap for me, but had I read it well before I knew about FIRE, it certainly would have lit a spark for me. So, uh, you know, great job, Bill Perkins, in getting people excited. Uh, Let's see what we've got. Uh, Mini OnCam says, how do you think FI could be more approachable to households with low-income or disability, um, that's tricky. I think low income. There's a lot of data out there. Um, certainly, the lean fire community is not just made up of people in tech who want to retire at 30. You know, I've met many lean fire individuals through the online communities I participate in, mostly Reddit and Discords, where there are people with very traditional um, uh, pay or on the lower end and they want to retire early. Now maybe that doesn't mean retiring at 30 or 40, maybe it, like me, means 50. Whatever that date means, it's early to that person. So I think the lean fire community has been very popular for people with you know non-tech jobs or non-stock market jobs um, for getting there and learning how to you know what are the tools i can use to control cost to save and invest more soundly right when you think about it it's the latter piece that most people lack education in right how do you invest is it scary is the stock market only something for rich people that sounds silly to say to this audience, because you're already likely to be well-educated in this, or at least more well-educated than the average consumer. So just getting exposed to the ideas from the FIRE community about saving and investing, again, books like Simple Path to Wealth, just, you know, VTSAX and chill, right? Put your money in one fund and make sure you're using your Roth IRA as long as you can, and then using 401ks and traditional IRAs that information is so helpful to anybody it's about being deliberate and planning the life that you want to have and that is accessible to people who uh, have low incomes now uh, I don't know of any specific resources for people with disabilities. If anybody in the chat does, I uh, would love you for you to link that or please comment on this YouTube video. I suspect, given how large the fire community is, that there must be information available that we could pass on to people who have needs there and who want to make plans in that way. So uh, thanks so much for asking the question. I hope I'm able to, I was able to attack at least part of it, and maybe the community can help us with uh, other parts of it. All right. Uh, Don McNamara asked, uh, are there any fun or interesting or surprising hobbies that I've tried post RE? Um, I think the long walks thing, maybe it doesn't sound thrilling to anybody, um, It certainly was surprising. Uh, I knew I wanted to, you know, exercise more readily. And during the pandemic, I started, you know, doing walks every single day to get outside that had a lot of benefits. Uh, some of them I did alone, which was great for reading and thinking. Helped me come up with blog uh, ideas, which for me was so helpful. Um, I, I mean, I can't even tell you how much writing was essential to me. And, and if you haven't read my blog, uh, please go to com slash about, A-B-O-U-T, and there'll be a link in my bio to the blog. Uh, if you go back to the archive, you'll see some of the things I was thinking about in those early days and just walking, getting outside uh, helped me process those. So to that end, writing, definitely not something I planned for. I blogged before people used the word blog online. I I was blogging in 1991, 1992 uh, rather, and didn't even know the word yet. Um, But I never thought I would go back to it, and especially never found it would be so useful. Obviously, this channel, not something I planned. Uh, it came as a result of a conversation Eric and I had. I think we talked about that in our very first episode of Two Sides of Fi. If you haven't seen the early episodes, highly recommend you go back. I apologize in advance for how unpolished I am and how much of my answers wander against Eric, who is a professional by that point. He's got a channel with a million subscribers, right? Um, but I think there's some real earnest conversation in there about the early days post-RE and some of the things I found myself doing. Um, like, you know, some of the coursework I did, you know, spending six months learning iOS app development, right? So I could write iPhone apps, something I did set down a couple of times since then. But um, I knew I wanted to explore, but definitely not to the degree that I ended up doing. So that was also somewhat of a plan, somewhat of a surprise. So um, it's, uh, you know, everybody's going to find their own path to your goal. But that's some examples of the things I did. All right, so at this point, I would like to start to wrap up. Uh, We're coming up on 90 minutes, assuming I don't edit any of this out. Uh, I want to first thank everybody for participating here. Don't leave just yet. I have a couple things I want to share. You know, as a reminder, I can't go into all the depth I want to in something like this. So please remember to check out the show notes. Those are not live yet. But when this episode goes up, and I get a little time to put together the show notes, they'll be at twosidesoffi dot com slash ama. Uh, the link was in the chat, and I set it out already. But if you want to check out the Two Sides of Fi Discord, we'd love to have you on the server twosidesoffi dot com slash discord d i s c o r d. And you know, lastly, we get asked all the time about how people can support the channel. You know, We're not gonna put up a buy me a coffee button, no judgment if other channels wanna do that, it's not for us. Um, I'm not gonna, uh, Eric, neither Eric or I are gonna ask for super chats or super thanks. Uh, you know, donations that way. Um, Honestly, if you want to support the show, the easiest and most impactful ways for a show our size is just subscribing to the channel, number one. So if you haven't already, we make it easy. Just go to com slash subscribe, and it will just ask you, do you want to subscribe to Two Sides of Fi? Please hit yes. If you haven't rated the podcast yet, even if you don't listen to it, it's exactly the same as the video. If you use uh, iOS, just go into the iTunes app, search for us, Give us a five star rating if you think we deserve it and write a few words about what you get from the show. The minute or two you spend on that pays off so much in just getting us visible in a field that's as big as the fire community is. And lastly, if there's an episode that resonates with you or a blog post uh, I've written, share it online. Send it to a friend um, by email. Better yet, post it on Reddit. We can't self-promote the show on the big fire and financial independence communities online. It's against the rules and it'll get deleted. Um, So please share, uh, help us out. That's what we asked for. We're not asking for money. We're asking for helping us get visible. So if you've done that already, thank you so much for all you've done to help the show. Thanks for being here today. And Eric and I both look forward to doing episodes together, sharing them with you, and you'll see those again before too long. So thanks again for being here, everybody. Take care. Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Phi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at 2